Thanks so much, everyone. If you've been following along with our series, this is our fourth and final installment of our series on 50 States of Joy. That's right. I will bring us home and then uh, we will, I'm assuming, return to Acts uh, after this. But so what I'm hoping to do in this lesson is to cover one last aspect or dimension of joy that we haven't given full weight to. And what I'm hoping that that'll do is tie together all of the lessons that we've had leading up to this point. You can see how joy connects with, with all of the different themes we've been developing and so uh, that's, that's the, the goal that we have in mind for today. Now, uh, I am particularly uh, excited, or I guess it's especially meaningful for me to be a part of our, our preaching on the series of joy, because um, some of you may know, uh, but a lot of you might not, that one of our daughters, the one in the foreground in that picture, her name is JJ, which a lot of you know, but a lot of you don't know is that the second J stands for... Joy, that's right. And when we named her Joy, and when, when we included that in her full name, it was very purposeful for us. Now, it's a very common name for parents to give children when they name their children Joy. I think uh, a lot of times what they have in mind when, when they name their child Joy is, it could be a couple different things. One is, um, you know, they, they think of their daughter giving them uh, intense happiness. So they, they name their child Joy because the, the hope is or the, the idea is that their child will bring them um, great happiness throughout their lives. Um, another way that people think about it is the hope that um, that, that child will have a happy disposition, that the, the child will, will be very happy or intensely happy and uh, have a happiness that's contagious. Now, it's uh, it's not uh, wrong or surprising for a lot of people to have happiness or intense happiness in mind when they name their children joy. Um, a lot of which uh, comes from the fact that a lot of dictionaries define joy that way in terms of some varying degree of happiness that's, that's more intense than normal happiness. But as Pastor Kevin pointed out for us last week, joy and happiness are related in some ways, but it is not fair or correct to say that the two are the same or that the two are even largely similar. They're not. And you know, what's interesting is that despite how common it is for us to use the word joy, even when we're talking about what the Bible says about joy, you get the impression when you, when you ask, when we ask each other to dig deep down to define joy, talk about what we mean when we use that word, there's a, there's a lot of confusion. And I think there is confusion about how that's different from happiness and why different biblical writers talk about joy the way that they do. It's almost as if that, you know, joy is a word as common as it is. It could end up in our series that uh, we've done in the past here at Spark called, you keep using that word, you, uh, I don't think it means what you think it means. And, uh, you know, joy would have naturally fit uh, along with that. So one of the things that I'm also hoping for us to do is come away with yet another definition of joy that is really rooted in something deeper and more lasting than maybe what a dictionary could provide us or something deeper and more lasting than just the idea of happiness or an emotion that's characterized primarily by happiness. Because when we named our daughter Joy, we wanted to connect it with what we felt were the deepest stories that occur in Scripture, some of the deepest themes that are core to what God is doing in the world today, something more than an emotion that you may or may not feel at any given time. We wanted to associate joy with something that lasts, 
Now, if we're going to talk about what the Bible says about joy, we have to go primarily to a particular person, and that is the Apostle Paul. Almost half of the mentions of joy in the New Testament come from Paul. And many of his most famous mentions of joy come from his letter to the church in Philippi, which he wrote later in his career while he was in prison for preaching the good news about Jesus. So him talking about joy so much in this context in such a famous way raises this question, what is Paul so joyful about and why? And this actually raises an issue where I think it's particularly problematic when we conflate uh, happiness and joy. Because when we think of happiness and joy as kind of the same thing, and then we think of what Paul must be going through when he's in prison at the church and uh, in prison and writing this letter to the church in Philippi, we kind of think that he he must be happy in jail, like he's smiling when he's doing everything. He's smiling as he writes out these letters, maybe maybe singing uh, happy songs about Jesus and. I think part of why we impute that like way of being onto Paul in uh, in prison is because in a lot of our circles, our circles that a lot of us came from, there is kind of this attitude that being a Christian and being joyful means that you have a smile on your face despite what you're going through, right? So you're going through intense suffering, but you know what? I'm happy. And a lot of times this is uh, this strategy of thinking of joy as, you know, putting on your happy face despite the reality that all of life is not great. And uh, life in many times, um, you know, we can struggle to find anything great going on. And it results in something that I think a lot of people who come into our community might be able to see through immediately. This is what I call, they would, they'd be able to see resting joy face. So this is the kind of face that you have where you look at it and you're like, I see that you're trying to be joyful, but I'm looking into your eyes and I think there's something deeply disturbing going on. So if you have seen the movie that came out recently called Get Out, which is uh, a, a terrifying and brilliant uh, film. Uh, there are characters that you're, you're introduced to early on in the movie that kind of set set the tone for the fact that there's something very wrong with, uh, with what's going on for some of these characters. And, and these are their faces where, where you can immediately see, no, 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 you, you're, you have a resting joy face, but that's not really what's going on below. Now, a great place to go to see how Paul realistically looked at joy, I think, is in one of his summary statements in this letter um, to the church in Philippi. So this a uh, big statement comes in, uh, in his closing remarks where he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, this statement that Paul makes about where he expects joy to come from is not, notice that it is not, everything's just fine, put on a happy face. Because he actually gives two commands right here when he provides advice to rejoice. He says, rejoice and he, uh, he commands them to go, do prayer and petition. With thanksgiving, present your request to God. Now, when you're telling people to pray to God and petition to him, you're inherently recognizing that not everything is the way that it ought to be. 
So Paul can simultaneously tell his church that they can be joyful, that they should rejoice, but at the same time, they should ask for things that will affect the way that the world is. They can ask God for things that God is currently not doing. That is what prayer is intended to do. Paul's joy doesn't downplay that the world is not fully as it ought to be. Another way a lot of us get tripped up when we're trying to understand where Paul's joy comes from is assuming that his optimism will carry him through these tough times. Because just a few verses after this, he utters one of the most famous and one of the most misunderstood phrases in the Bible, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. It's probably, you know, extremely recognizable. This is a phrase that even back before I became a Christian, I recognized quite a bit because a lot of people, it's, all, it's kind of like on the John 3.16 level. You, you hear people mention it here and there. So growing up, I played a lot of basketball in what turned out to be uh, Christian school gyms. And this is all the more interesting because I was a Muslim for my childhood. And so that's just a testament to how hard I wanted to ball. I would play with whoever, wherever. If it took me to Christian gyms, so be it. So what's interesting is that, and I, I have vivid memories of this, you, you go to a lot of Christian school gyms, and they will have a scripture passage on the wall, like to the, to the entry of a gym, and it will be this phrase, I can do all things through him who gives me strength, or through Christ who strengthens me. When you see that passage written on the wall when you enter a gym, especially I have most often seen it in like weightlifting rooms, the impression, I'm not kidding, the impression that you're getting is what they mean is that this is what this Christian school's gym wants to cultivate is that you go in there and you can lift weights harder for Jesus because Jesus can strengthen you to do that. That is, that is gains with a Z for Jesus with a Z. That brings you from bench pressing 200 pounds to 250 pounds because you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. And, and when you talk to people, especially athletes, about like what, you know, how this passage empowers them to do what they do, it is very much an optimism kind of thing. That's what they mean. They mean like positive energy. It's that God helps them to accomplish whatever they set their minds to. And so we think that where Paul's joy is coming from is in Philippians is that maybe, I don't know, through positive mental thinking, he can will himself out of prison. That's what he's going to do, and that's why he was so cheery in his situation. Now, when we're mentioning this passage, especially the way that athletes use it, and by the way, the way athletes use it has an effect on the way many of us understand it, because I think a lot of us do get a lot of our theology from our favorite athletes. Um, I, I'm included, as I will talk about in a second. So one of the, uh, the most famous, or probably the most famous athlete in the world right now associated with that verse, in, uh, with those verses in Philippians, is, uh, is Brother Wardell Stephen Curry II. This is our Golden State Warriors point guard, Steph Curry whom uh, I love. I've mentioned several times in previous sermons. Pastor Mark has too. I guess he's kind of the unofficial pastor of joy for Spark, given uh, how much we talk about him and how much apparently he has affected the way we understand the Bible. So one of the, one of the things that, that um, is people talk about when they talk about Steph Curry and his faith and uh, basketball is that he plays out of joy. 
And uh, there's discussions about um, whether or not he writes those, that passage on his shoes at different times when he plays and things like that. So he is, he's tightly associated with that phrase. And I think then what happens is that a lot of us who uh, put, you know, trying to understand the context of Philippians and who know that there's more to that passage than just optimism and positive uh, mental attitude, um, we, we might think that that's what Steph Curry thinks when he puts that, uh, when he puts those passages on his shoe or talks about it. But, um, you know, but uh, I don't think that's actually true. Either way, though, the way this connection works, it's so strong that uh, after the Warriors lost the NBA Finals last year, which, you know, hold back the tears, we'll get through this together. We're on the path to redemption as we speak. So when that happened, uh, uh, just a, a few days later, the, there was a, a parody news article. So this is from the Babylon Bee. The Babylon Bee, is a, it's a fake news site. Um, it's basically like The Onion, if you're familiar with that. It's like The Onion for Evangelical Christianity. So this is not real. It didn't happen. But what it does is it says, you know, it, it talks about how uh, Steph Curry discovered that uh, he, you know, after losing to the Cavaliers, he, he discovered that, wait a second, um, Philippians 4 is not what's going to let me win as many championships as I like. It's actually about something else, and it goes on to say it. Here's the thing. I understand what the Babylon Bee was trying to do, and I think in general that point is accurate, but really, in real life, it is wrong to associate that approach towards this passage with Steph Curry, because here is how Steph Curry actually talks about these themes related to Philippians 4. He says, being, this is what he tweeted once, being a Christian athlete doesn't mean praying for your team to win. God doesn't give an edge to those who pray over those who don't. Hard work does that. Being a Christian means competing for Christ in a way which you always give your all for him and win or lose, you thank him for the ability and opportunity to play. It means giving all the glory to God no matter the outcome because you trust in his plans for your life. Now you tell me, does Brother Wardell sound like he's getting closer to what Paul is saying than how a lot of us interpret this passage? I think that's accurate because here is the, sorry, here's the context, the full context of that passage. This is what Paul is saying right before he says, I can do all things. I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in uh, any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. So you realize in context, this is not optimism. It's not boundless optimism. It's not, it's not just positivism. It's rooting your joy in the fact that you will persevere in the Lord. You will find your joy in the Lord no matter what is happening. Now, this also raises a question that I think we'll need to unpack to get a full sense of joy, which is, how does Christ give Paul the strength to find joy amid suffering? And I think that comes in the explanation that's uh, featured prominently within this passage. So back to this main statement of joy, the summary statement that we were talking about. Here you go. The Lord is near. That's why Paul believes that Christ can give him the strength to get through whatever he's getting through. It's because the Lord is near. And this will be the key to understanding where Paul thinks joy comes from. And it raises a question for us that we need to grapple, which is, what does it mean for Paul for the Lord to be near? 
Because I think a lot of times when we see a phrase like that or when we say we feel the nearness of the Lord, what we're talking about is a subjective feeling that Jesus is close to us, that he's in our hearts, that he's taking care of us. And I think that's part of it. But he's actually talking about, when he talks about the Lord being near, he's talking about, about a joy that lasts, a joy that cannot be taken away by anything, not in this world and not even in the world to come. So when he says the Lord is near, he's making a statement about the grand story of Scripture, about what God is doing in the world and the kingdom that he's inaugurated through his son. The best way I can think of how we can work through joy in Paul's mind and what it means for him to say that the Lord is near is to bring in a dialogue partner for Paul, another Scripture writer who also says a great deal about joy. And that dialogue partner is the preacher in Ecclesiastes. So some of you uh, were smart enough to laugh because you are maybe familiar with Ecclesiastes and you think, how on earth does that author provide us any kinds of insights about true or lasting joy? So to give you context, for those of you who aren't uh, as familiar with Ecclesiastes, so this, this document, Ecclesiastes, is a book that is part of uh, ancient Israel's wisdom literature. So it pursues these big questions about what does it mean to be wise? What does it mean to live a life that's fulfilling in God? And the way Ecclesiastes is set up is that the author of, of the book uses this character, who he calls the preacher, and that's what we'll call him too, as a framing device. And so this character in Ecclesiastes, the preacher, uh, searches for meaning in all sorts of things uh, in Ecclesiastes. He searches for meaning in pleasure. He searches for meaning in wisdom. He searches for meaning in work. And in this search, in this process, he actually talks about joy a lot, what he finds joy in and what he doesn't find joy in. Now, what's interesting with Ecclesiastes and particularly challenging is that because of a well-meaning, you could call it a conservative evangelical impulse to make all of the Bible speak clearly and safely with one voice, a lot of the most scathing insights that Ecclesiastes offers often gets blunted because we read uh, the preacher saying something about joy, and we think he can't possibly mean that. That sounds so dark and so bleak, and it doesn't square with anything else anybody else says in the rest of the Bible. Uh, there's got to be a way to interpret this so that Ecclesiastes is just as happy as I am, or as Paul is, or something like that. But we're sparkers. We're not afraid to let the Bible speak with its own voice and to understand Ecclesiastes in its own context and to listen to this preacher and follow through on his logic and go where the preacher goes with his own insights, right? So we, we will follow, we'll follow him where he's going no matter how dangerous it is because ultimately following Ecclesiastes through on its own logic will be super helpful for us in understanding where he and Paul may agree and disagree and how their senses of joy differ. So when we read through a few passages that highlight the preacher's approach to joy, what I want you to do is try to keep in mind two questions. Not only what the preacher says about joy, but why he says it. In other words, why does the preacher say he finds joy in the various things that he says he finds joy in? And I think it'll help us see how the preacher's understanding of joy compares and contrasts to, the, to Paul's understanding of joy. So first, 
uh, a good summary statement of Ecclesiastes um, on, you know, what it means to find joy or to live what you could call a good life uh, occurs in Ecclesiastes 5. And, and there's these phrases that occur in this passage here that we're reading occur so many times throughout the whole book. And we're going to unpack a few of those to, to get to um, really what's, what's uh, motivating the preacher to say these things. So in Ecclesiastes here in, in chapter 5, it says, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. Now you read this, and I think that impulse that we talked about to make the Bible speak with one voice can actually come through, right? You read this and you say, yeah, I, I can see how, how this, is, this squares with uh, a lot of uh, what other authors in the Bible say. It's that, look, life can be tough. You got to find joy in what God has given you. Joy is a gift from God. You might as well enjoy your life. But that is not the reason, the reasoning that Ecclesiastes is giving. So this is what he says. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him busy and occupied, occupied with joy in his heart. So don't be deceived. This is resignation, not optimism. What he's saying is life is short and painful. Then you die. You might as well eat, drink, and be happy on the way. It numbs the pain of your otherwise meaningless existence. That, that is what he's saying. This is made even clearer in a stronger statement. He makes several verses earlier. In Ecclesiastes 2, he says, so I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish, yet they will have control over all my fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. Just a few verses after this, he goes on to repeat the phrase, eat and drink and find satisfaction with your own toil. So now we get another layer onto his, his logic. Life is short. You die. You can't take your money with you. Might as well enjoy the ride. That's what he's saying here. You get the impression that for the preacher, death is this barrier. It is this overwhelming force that renders anything he does in his life and pursues meaningless. That's where it stops for him. Now, this impression, this idea of death being the overwhelming force that blunts everything for Ecclesiastes, I think is made the clearest just a few verses later in chapter 3. In Ecclesiastes 3, he says, as for humans, God tests them. Now, this is right after he actually makes a statement not about what he sees as the futility of pursuing work only for it to amount to nothing or go to somebody else. Actually, right before he makes this statement, he talks about the futility of injustice in the world. He says that I look around the world and I don't see righteousness and judgment. He says I see wickedness being rampant. So he perceives this deep unfairness. He sees that the world is not as it ought to be and his reaction is this, as for humans, God tests them so that they may see that they are like animals. Surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. 
As one dies, so does the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust all returns. Who knows if the human spirit rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes downward. So I saw that there is nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work because that is their lot. For who can bring them to see what will happen after them? Again, I've seen so many times that I've sat through so many Bible studies of Ecclesiastes where people say, you know, you should take joy in the work that you do. And even somebody as real as Ecclesiastes says you should. And my problem every time we bring that up is like, uh, he doesn't say why he finds joy for the reasons that you think he's saying those reasons are. He, I mean, he, he, he does it out of resignation. For him, death is where it all ends. After all, who, who can... Uh, come to help him see something that comes after him. So here is the thing, though. I think this is, this is a great place for us to, to bring Paul back into this dialogue. Because herein lies the difference between the purposeless joy that the preacher has and the purpose-giving joy that Paul has. Because someone has brought Paul to see what will happen after him. Someone has brought Paul to see that death is not that overwhelming force that blunts everything that you do in life. And that is Jesus. And it's because Paul knows that it's through Jesus, the risen Jesus, that death has actually lost its sting. It is not an overwhelming force. It's an underwhelming force. It is something that has begun to lose and is in an inevitable loss, ultimately, where when the restoration of all things happen, death will be foreign to that experience. One of the most famous places in which Paul gives an impassioned plea for the meaning of the resurrection and the implications of what it has for the joy that we experience comes in 1 Corinthians 15. He's responding to the church in Corinth and their questions that they have about the resurrection. Doubts about whether something like that can happen, because if it could happen, what would that even be like? There are so many things that I have to stretch and wrap my mind around to to be able to understand how our resurrected world works. And so it's causing them to have questions about it. And so this is what Paul says. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. And he goes on later to say, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we of all, uh, of all people, we, we are of all people most to be pitied. If Christ is not raised from the dead and if people are not raised, to be de- raised from the dead, then Paul is very resigned. And his resignation sounds very familiar, doesn't it? It sounds very much like the kind of resignation that Ecclesiastes had. And here is how Paul summarizes this part of the argument in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. This is, Paul has Ecclesiastes as a dialogue partner here. You know, uh, many scholars will point out that Ecclesiastes is probably one of the few books of the Old Testament that's not quoted or alluded to in the New Testament. Granted, given, uh, you know, if you consider all of the passages that we just read from Ecclesiastes, maybe it's understandable why it's not, uh, you know, on the inspiration board for New Testament writers when they were, uh, you know, contemplating their stories about Jesus. But Some scholars will point out that if Ecclesiastes is being alluded to or addressed anywhere in the New Testament, it might be here. 
And then it becomes ironic that the only time possibly that it's being alluded to is to subvert it. This is where Paul and Ecclesiastes differ the strongest. It's because Paul has seen the world to come. He does not have despair over what he does in the here and now. In fact, he finds joy in serving Jesus, even when he sees hostile forces in this world, when he sees what could feel like the meaningless of day-to-day work or what he sees as injustice occurring on a day-to-day basis. So for Paul... The way I like to think about it is that for him, resurrection and joy go hand in hand. Now, these are, that's right. Hey, so for those of you who know the names of our daughters and know a little bit of Greek, this will make a lot of sense. So these are our twin daughters. Um, You'll see that uh, there's Anastasia. So Anastasia comes from the Greek word for resurrection. And then there's JJ, second uh, J is joy, which comes from the English word for joy. That's not as complicated. (laughs) So the way, you know, part of naming our children this way was that we did, we wanted these, these themes to go together. This is resurrection and joy. They belong together. They're built upon each other. So for Paul, joy is rooted in a deep theme that runs throughout scripture, the core story that's going through it, that God is about restoration and resurrection and making dead things alive and breaking his kingdom into the world and fighting death and hostile forces in that process. And it causes him to engage in the world around him. Now, I think when you, when you root your joy in the world to come, it can lead to a challenge or maybe you could say um, a snag that a lot of Christians hit when they think about joy primarily centering around the world to come. And that is it can lead to this attitude or approach or this maybe even understanding of the central story of Scripture as one of escape. So joy comes in escaping because you could say, and this is a common story that many of us have heard as the story of the Bible, is that true joy comes in knowing that God raised Jesus from the dead. And if you believe in him, then when you die, you too can be raised from the dead and escape to heaven and be with Jesus where he is and the world around you that causes you so much despair, that, has, that threatens to take away your joy, God will destroy all of it. He'll burn it all up. That's, all of that stuff is meaningless. What's really sad to me that when we frame the story that way, We're actually giving Ecclesiastes, the preacher in Ecclesiastes, a lot more weight to what he's saying. Because when you look at joy that way, that joy is about those spiritual things, and I put that in quotations, about those heavenly things, those things about the world far away, then yeah, I think it would be hard to find joy or pleasure in the work that you do, unless you can in some, uh, you know, immediate or obvious way connect it to Jesus. A great example that, uh, that highlights exactly this kind of challenge for me is a few years ago when a, a buddy of mine was talking about uh, how he, like he, he was actually very happy that he was able to finally quit what he called his secular job to focus on the Lord's work. So those were his words. That's how he described it. And when he said it, I mean, I was happy for him for, for the shift in vocation, but I cringed so hard when he said that. And for a couple reasons. One is, when he describes the work that he was doing before as his secular job, 
It makes me wonder, where is this difference occurring in the Bible between secular work and sacred work that you can be doing? What's interesting is that he was in a place where he couldn't connect what he was doing in his day job before he became a preacher um, to God's work and to the restoration and those deeper themes within scripture, which I find all the more ironic because he was in maintenance and repair. And I wanted to tell him for a living dude, you take broken things and you put them back together. How is that not God's work? But he didn't see it that way because to him, God's work was preaching full time, which meant he had a salary from his church and that allowed him to not have the secular jobs that the rest of us have that I guess apparently, you know, when I go to work uh, uh, on Monday morning. I'm not doing the Lord's work. I thought I was, but I guess not. And I guess a lot of us aren't. You know, the, uh, this idea of differentiating the two, I think actually does this problem where it makes the Lord not near. It makes him further away than he actually is. And that, I think, has the ability to rob our joy from so many things that we do in life. One of the great ways that I think that we can think about joy not as escaping, but engaging, as having a joy in the world to come that compels you to bring justice into the world actually comes from uh, this kind of language about joy being rooted in the world to come, being used in uh, social justice action in American history. So there's a, a famous quote from Martin Luther King in his final speech. It's called the mountaintop speech. Now, these are actually the closing statements, part of the closing statements that he has in his speech uh, the night before, the day before he's assassinated. So this is what he says the day before he's assassinated, reflecting on um, where he sees his joy coming from and where he sees value in the work that he's doing. He says, well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop and I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain and I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. And so I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. This is profound. And I think it needs to be reflected on more often because there are a lot of readers of speeches like this from Martin Luther King and others in the world today who, because of just a lack of awareness of how this kingdom inaugurated language works in the Bible, these references of mountaintops, and of the promised land are lost on them. If you, if you are trying to understand Martin Luther King's logic, where he is getting his contentment from, it's because he has seen the world as it ought to be. When he says he's been taken to the mountaintop, he's using biblical language that describes a vision of the world to come, a world to come that is full of justice and peace and mercy where love reigns supreme. He has seen that world, and because he knows that that's where the world is headed, that's where he gets his joy from, that even if he does not see it everywhere or all the time in his life at that time, he knows that the promised land will arrive, that they will all get there together. That's where his confidence comes from. That's where his joy comes from. 
And notice, too, towards the end when he talks about happiness, not uh, having uh, worry, not fearing, and having his, um, his joy rooted in the glory of the coming of the Lord. Those are themes that Pastor Mark actually mentioned a few weeks ago that are all different elements of joy that, that uh, we should highlight when we think about like just the daily practice of living through joy. Martin Luther King, is, he's using joy language when he's talking about the consequences of him having seen the mountaintop. Now, you know you're on to a good definition of joy when not only your interpretation of the Bible seems to be focusing on the world to come, uh, your, your favorite pastor athlete, Steph Curry, is talking about the world to come being related to joy, and even philosophers from wide-ranging backgrounds are talking about joy in the world to come. So there is a philosopher, Nicholas Wolterstorff, who uh, is a philosopher at Yale and is uh, associated with this joy project that uh, we've been preaching through. Where he, and he describes joy as that emotion which happens when I care about reality being a certain way and I judge that it is that way. That's, what, that's how he's describing joy. It's a sense in which you know that the world ought to be a certain way and you rejoice when you see those times that it is. Now, there's a 19th, famous 19th century German philosopher, very different, coming from a very different place than Wolterstorff, who nevertheless captures this same element of joy where he says, all joy wants eternity, wants deep, deep eternity. So even Nietzsche is understanding that a true joy, when we talk about a joy that lasts, we're trying to connect it to something that is beyond, the, beyond this world, beyond something where death is the barrier and the end to the joy that you experience. Now, one of the things, too, that I wanted us to keep in mind is that when, joy, when you think of joy working out as the world to come, coming here, uh, here and now, that it's not just something that happens on very famous and dramatic social justice stages. There's a way of thinking about joy that's actually very different from my buddy who was talking about secular work and sacred. And a great quotation that I think summarizes that comes from my, one of my most favorite bloggers uh, and Christian authors, Rachel Held Evans. She's going to use this phrase called uh, the God of all pots and pans. And what that means is that is a phrase um, dating centuries back. It's very common, uh, actually, in Catholic circles. A lot of people are familiar with it. And what it's basically describing is, you know, when you say God is the God of pots and pans, it's that God is the kind of God you can find everywhere in any vocation that you do. He's not just found in preaching or being a priest or being a pastor uh, or being a bishop or something like that. He's actually somebody who can be found in even places that people or the world tends to put a reputation on as being insignificant, like domestic duty or domestic chores that all of us have to do that characterize a lot of our lives. So, so she actually expands this sentiment that I think captures joy well, where she says, if God is the God of all pots and pans, then he is also the God of all shovels and computers and paints and assembly lines and executive offices and classrooms. Peace and joy belong not to the woman who finds the right vocation, but to the woman who finds God in any vocation who looks for the divine around every corner. Rachel Held Evans understands that her joy comes from the Lord being near. He is not far off. He is not accessible only in certain works. He is accessible in all of our good works. The joy of the Lord comes from our own work and our understanding that Jesus is what empowers us to engage the world around us. So to take it home, 
I wanted to offer you a concise definition of joy that we can all um, use to evaluate the way that we've been thinking about joy for the last few weeks. Uh, I really loved uh, Pastor Kevin's definition a couple weeks or last week about joy being a justice strategy. That's really good. So when I was trying to come up with uh, a definition that appropriately captures uh, everything that I wanted to say. As I was drafting it, I realized it was approaching haiku form. That was not intentional. But I was like, hey, this, this sounds kind of good. And it also is kind of like a haiku. So then I tried to, you know, arrange it to make it fit. So this is the silliest way I've conveyed the most serious thing I've probably ever preached about. But bear with me. I think we'll enjoy it. So here it is. Joy is recognizing that Something from the world to come is right here, right now. That is where joy comes from. So when I see uh, all of these things that we've all been mentioning together over the last few weeks that bring us joy, what I would encourage you to do is think about how those things that you mentioned connect with things from the world to come and what the world to come will be like. Because when I see things the preacher in Ecclesiastes saw, the injustice of the world, uh, the futility of wealth, the suffocating meaningless of it all, I know that because of the risen and victorious Jesus, that that is not how the world ought to be, and that's not how the world will be. And that is what brings me joy. So every time we sacrifice our power or privilege or money or resources or our own bodies out of the joy that comes in making the world here and now more like the world to come, not a single moment of those sacrifices will ever be meaningless. In fact, the world to come will be defined by loving acts of restoration like that. We have reflected on many of those restoration passages throughout Scripture. They are defined by these very themes that we've been talking about. Peace, joy, love, mercy, families being reconciled, people far off who've been enemies being reconciled, hostility between people and creation being reconciled. That's what the world to come will look like. So every day that you spend and every moment that you spend making the world more like that in the name of Jesus... You're building a familiar place for yourself. You are creating the world to come in your midst. So that'll be so familiar that when, you, when the world to come actually comes, you can describe it as your joy being made complete. You will feel right at home. As if, as Paul says in Philippians, that's where your citizenship has been all along. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for giving us time to reflect on the the beauty that is your creation and the ultimate beauty that is your son, Jesus, and giving us a chance to orient all of our thoughts and our actions around him and to take deep joy in everything that we do for his sake and for your kingdom. We love you, and we will always be grateful for everything you've done through your son that empowers us through your spirit to be more like you, and to create spaces in your creation that resemble the world to come. God, please continue to always empower us with joy to make the world around us more like the way you want it to be. And may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven and come nearer and nearer to us, Lord, every day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.